What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 2712985 and uh, we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985 you can always send us an email that email address is ctc at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price Charles Beery producing the program your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. Our host is he is every day, Dr. David Anders. How are you? Jack, I'm doing great. How about you? Terrific, thank you. Got an email here from Dennis. He says, Dear David, I was wondering today why you don't tell folks where to find the answers to their questions in the catechism. As a convert, I now treasure it, and handed copies on to my children and my children's children. I reference it for them while they ask, or I don't want to teach the why about what we believe and practice. It's always true. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, you know, the 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 modus operandi of a Catholic radio host has absolutely nothing authoritative behind it at all, and so you definitely don't have to approach answering questions about the faith in the same way that I do, right? And the way I answer questions is a function of my own, of course, education, background, predilections, and so forth. So I draw on the literature and the studies that are most uh, salient to me, that are most present in my memory. Um, I am very fond of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I cite it frequently, um, and it's extremely useful when I need to come up with a pithy, authoritative response to a specific question. And and, and, so, and I, I, in a few cases, I have paragraphs of the Catechism committed to memory, but uh, but there's no principled reason why I would cite, say, the Catechism versus a text of Scripture versus uh, versus you know an encyclical of a pope or a passage from Saint Thomas Aquinas. It, it literally is whatever is at hand mentally uh, that will get the job done in the moment. But to be sure, I always advise if people want a comprehensive account of the Catholic faith, read the Catechism. That's what it's there for. Um, Enrique. Writes in, Dear Dr. Andrews, Romans chapter 9 seems to imply that God creates some people for damnation and others for salvation. Could you please explain? Yeah, thanks. So it's really important, I think, in dealing with the book of Romans to to back up and ask why Paul wrote the book of Romans. What is the purpose of the book of Romans? And Paul tells us very clearly in especially chapter 2 what the theme of the entire book is. It is a book about the relationship of Jews to Gentiles. That's what it's about. It's not particularly concerned, it's not specifically concerned 
with the election or the damnation or the salvation of the individual soul as such. I mean, there are things that he teaches in there that are relevant to the question of personal salvation, but thematically, it's really about people groups. And the, 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 the live theological question uh, in uh, uh, early, early Christianity was, what happens when Gentile converts want to join the Christian movement through faith in Christ? Since Christianity was initially a Jewish movement uh, and, a, and a belief in a Jewish Messiah, do Gentiles who join the movement have to become Jews? Uh, do they have to follow the complete law of Moses? And he deals with that in a, in a little way in Galatians, in a much more comprehensive way in Romans. And the answer to the question that Paul asks is, no, they don't. They don't have to become card-carrying Jews uh, circumcise their children, follow all the laws of Kashrut and so forth in order to enter into the Christian movement. And and that's his main area of concern. So in Romans 2, he asks, you know, is God the God of Jews only or also of Gentiles? No, he's God of the whole world, right? So when you when you deal with the passages in Romans 9 to 11, Paul's specific concern is why didn't all the Jews believe in Christ, right? Some Jews did, obviously, they became the apostles and the disciples and the early Christians, but why did the bulk of, uh, of the Jewish people in the first century not, not believe in Jesus? And, and what Paul uh, deals with in that, in that passage is that, well, you know, God can have his purposes in divine providence as he, you know, conducts uh, the affairs of the world and sort of moves salvation history forward. And he raises the hypothetical question. He doesn't say this is exactly what happened, but he says if this were to be what happened, it would be just. If God um, delayed the, the full acceptance of Jesus as Messiah by the Jewish people so that, as he puts it, the full number of Gentiles might come in, that that would be a rational plan, right? He could do it that way if he wanted to. But it really isn't, and this is the way Calvinists have read it, Lutherans have read it, about the salvation or the election or damnation of individual souls. I think that's the wrong way to read it. I think it's, it's you need to see this as God's providential concern for uh, the course of the human race and the relationship of Gentiles to Jews. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It is a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Eternal Life Radio in Fitchburg and Shirley, Massachusetts, celebrating 11 years with EWTN. Congratulations to Marianne Harold and her whole team at WQPH. 89.3 from your friends here at EWTN. Straight ahead, we'll talk to David in Texas, Kaylee in Nebraska, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls. Pick up the phone and give us a call. Answer our question, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 Eight, six. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. Or maybe you're speaking with someone who's asked you a question about the Catholic faith that you can't answer. We take those questions as well at 833-288-3986. You know, you can take EWTN with you right in your pocket anywhere you go with the free EWTN app. You can download it now by simply logging on to EWTN.com slash applications. Next up, first up today, is David in the Republic of Texas. He is in Amarillo today, listening to EWTN Radio on the EWTN app. David, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, My question was uh, regarding a discussion I was having with a good friend of mine that we're both converts. You've in the past helped me tremendously kind of unravel some of the latent Protestant concepts that I still have in my mind. And this uh, this was kind of in that light. We were talking about hermeneutics, and um, he had attended a Protestant, evangelical, kind of a charismatic Bible college where they taught a principle or a law of hermeneutics called the, the law or the principle of first usage or first occurrence. Yep. And I, I had never heard of this before. I'm a graduate of Asbury Seminary, and we never talked about this. And I just, I'm, my question is, have you heard of it? And if you have, is it compatible with a, a Catholic interpretation of Scripture? Um, yeah, that's my question. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. I, I have heard of it. Uh, the, the theory, and it's where I have found it mostly, is in the writing of fundamentalists, dispensationalists, that sort of thing. Um, it's not a principle you find in classical Protestantism that I'm aware of, uh, but one you do find in modern fundamentalism. <clears throat> and the principle is that the first time that a concept is brought up in Holy Scripture, that that has a sort of normative value, and that subsequent mentions of the topic have to be interpreted or understood with reference to that first or initial mention, uh, hence the law of first mention or the law of first occurrence. Uh, to my way of thinking, this is this is not a Catholic way of reading the Bible at all, and uh, and it really presumes a, a fundamentalist understanding of the Bible and a fundamentalist understanding of the canon. Um, from a Catholic point of view, Scripture's revelation is definitely progressive, and the the point of reference is not some arbitrary principle uh, based on temporal priority. And of course, the theory presupposes that we can actually identify what the first mention of a, te- of a passage is in Scripture. I mean, as it, from an historical point of view, it's entirely debatable which historical books were actually written first. They, they weren't written in canonical order. It's not like Genesis was written first and then Exodus and on down the line. That, that's, that, that, that's to misconstrue the way the Bible was actually composed. Um, but, uh, but apart from that, the, the, the Catholic principle is that Christ is the is the touchstone. He is the authoritative uh, uh, point of reference to interpret the rest of the Bible. And, uh, and, and when you are looking at individual books, you read them not only Christologically, but you also read them with the mind of the Church. So another touchstone or criterion for authentic interpretation is the development of Catholic doctrine. Um, and then you, you actually have to look at uh, the historical elements. You have to look at the context of the book. You have to look at the genre of the book, the language of the book. And all of those can change the way a concept or a word is presented. 
Uh, I mean, in uh, even in normal spoken English or any, in any contemporary language or classical language uh, for that matter, the meaning of a word isn't its etymology or its historical origin. The meaning of the word is its use, and use is always very context-dependent. So that's just that just makes good sense. I mean, uh, words, we have English words today that mean something very different uh, than, uh, than the very same word might have meant 50 years ago, and, and you know, be arbitrary to say, well, it can only mean what it meant to my grandfather's generation, for example. The same thing is true with, uh, with biblical language. Now, I think the reason that a fundamentalist might hold this theory is because, first of all, they, they tend to see the Bible as, a, as level. In other words, they, they tend to see all the texts of Scripture as standing on an equal footing, because they regard the book in its totality, their canon of the Bible, um, as a kind of comprehensive guide to Christian doctrine and the Christian life. And so a model of doing theology for a fundamentalist, and this is Charles Hodge in his Systematic Theology states this explicitly, if you want to know what God thinks about a particular topic, so argues Hodge, what you do is you find every mention of the concept in the Bible, you line them all up, and then you arrange them into a kind of systematic order, and voila, you have the divine opinion on that topic. Uh, but to but to come to that theory, you have to hold the fundamentalist view of the Bible that it exists in this way, that it's a kind of comprehensive uh, textbook on Christian doctrine, and uh, that the only work of the interpreter is to just arrange the propositions in some sort of logical, coherent order. That That's not the way Catholics view the Bible at all. That's not the Bible's function. It's not there to be the unique guidebook on Christian life or doctrine. Um, and the, the task of handing on the faith authoritatively falls not to Scripture alone, but to the teaching authority of the Church and to sacred tradition, which is the context within which uh, sacred Scripture is read. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Kay writes in, Dr. Anders, our bishop recently told my mom that once you get into heaven, you are a saint. I've always thought you had to be canonized into sainthood by the church. Can you explain if what he said was correct? Thank you. Y- yes, thank you. Your bishop is correct. Your bishop is correct. Thanks be um, to God, there, right? <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a one-way door on, in heaven, and there's a one-way door in hell, right? There's an entrance and no exit. Once you're in heaven, you're in heaven. And, uh, and, and, and you have your eternal reward. Now, what canonization does, canonization does not change the, the, the eternal state of any individual soul, right? Uh, what canoniza- canonization is simply a declaration to the church militant, to those of us that are still alive, that, that we have it on good authority that somebody is actually in heaven, right? So, and the reason that we have canonization in the Catholic Church is so that we can feel safe offering public veneration as a community to a particular individual, right? So if I know for sure that, say, St. John Paul II is in heaven, then, uh, then it makes sense to pray for his intercession and to, and to honor him in that way. Uh, that doesn't mean that only canonized saints are in heaven. There are lots and lots of saints, that is to say holy ones, in heaven who have never been canonized by the Church. And, uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons that we have what's today, Jack? The Feast all of Saints. All Saints. The Feast of All Saints covers everybody in heaven, not just the canonized saints. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. All right, so Sandra writes in, this is the most succinct. This, this is, I'm not getting to the question yet. 
But we get this question in many different forms. This is the most succinct form in which we get this question. Sandra wants to know, why do Catholics worship Mary? Oh, thank you. (laughs) So the premise of the question is mistaken, right? Catholics don't worship Mary. We don't understand ourselves to be worshiping Mary. Uh, We do two things with the Blessed Virgin Mary. One, we venerate her, and that means that we acknowledge her merits. And St. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, render to each one what is his due, honor to whom honor, custom to whom custom, taxes to whom taxes. So an act of justice. So we honor Mary and the saints in the same way that, say, the United States would erect a monument to Martin Luther King Jr. to honor him for his achievements, to honor him for his contribution to our civic life, or to George Washington or Abe Lincoln or or you name it, Um, uh, in the same way that, um, you know, that, that, that Alabamians will go out of their head with glee when the Crimson Tide comes pouring onto the field. They stand up and cheer their favorite team, right? Um, and uh, and there's nothing, well, in principle wrong with cheering your favorite team or celebrating a war hero or a civil rights hero or something of that nature. Um, and in the same way, when we see outstanding holiness, it is right and just and appropriate to say, rah, rah, go Mary. Rah, rah, go St. Augustine. Rah, rah, go St. Francis. We, we are rendering honor to whom honor is due. That's an act of justice. The other thing that we do is we ask the Blessed Virgin Mary to pray for us. And in doing that, that's no different than if I were to ask Jack over here to pray for me. If I had a problem and I turned to my friend and said, would you please pray for me? It's no different. It's conceptually exactly the same thing. Why would you ask another human being to pray for you? Well, Scripture tells us that the prayer of a righteous man is is very powerful. It avails much. It's very effective. And uh, we all know that. We know that, you know, sometimes you'd, you'd rather have your, your holy, pious grandmother who spends half her life on her knees, uh, you know, on the job than, um, you know, than your, you know, worthless uncle, whoever, who, who just got out of jail and hadn't darkened the door of a church in 50 years. You know, you might want his prayers, too, but you just kind of think grandmoms are going to work better, right? At that principle holds true uh, with the dead as well. They also are part of the church. They love God. They love what God loves. They love us. They, they want the sanctification of the world because that's what God wants. They're asking him for favors on behalf of the church. All we're doing is saying, hey, please pray for us, just like you'd say that to somebody else. And Scripture backs this idea up of reading Revelation chapter 5, that the saints in heaven offer our prayers to God. That's part of their job. One of their job descriptions is to intercede with God on our behalf. We're just acknowledging that. So that looks like worship to many non-Catholics, because they have the wrong idea that any time you pray to someone, that is to say, ask them for favors, that that constitutes worship. That's just not what worship means. What is worship? What is worship? Well, the central act of worship is to offer sacrifice. Remember when Moses said to Pharaoh, yeah, God has let us go. We got to go to the desert. We have to go out there out of Egypt, and we have to worship our God and offer sacrifices. The central act of worship is sacrifice. We don't sacrifice to Mary. We don't sacrifice to the saints. Uh, the, the premier sacrifice in the Catholic Church is the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Go to a Mass, listen to the words, see if we offer anything there to Mary. We don't. We offer the sacrifice to God alone. The saints are there with us as co-worshippers, offering the sacrifice along with us. Next up is John, a first-time caller in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. John, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Thank you very much. Dr. Anders, it's an honor. Um, I've been listening to you for months. You're so brilliant and humble, 
I always think of the Thomas Aquinas phrase that you realize that all you say is like straw before God. And if you don't know something, you bow before the mystery. I guess it's not so much a question, but a comment. It just, it's always gotten to me when somebody is sick and somebody will start prayer chains or somebody famous is sick. They'll say millions and millions and millions of people are praying for them. Somehow, like it's quantitative, as opposed to the poor guy who dies in the street or dies in Calcutta. And obviously, there's people praying for all the souls. It's always just struck me as is almost uh, somehow discomforting to think that we talk about, well, millions and millions of people are praying for the Pope or somebody famous, and yet there's only one or two people, and we somehow, or a lot of people think that's better. Yeah, I just wanted to know your comments on that. I, 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 well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. They deeply appreciated. Secondly, I, I could not agree with you more that, that not every prayer is equally worthy. And St. John of the Cross once said that there are many people who pray badly and think that they pray well, and there are people who pray well but think that they pray badly. Jesus clearly says that some prayers are more efficacious than others, and some are downright useless and some even harmful. Um, he says if you pray on street corners to be seen by men, you have your reward in full. And then he has some other nasty things to say about people that behave that way and calls them hypocrites and so forth and says their condemnation is justly deserved. So there is a way of praying that far from being efficacious, in fact, is, um, um, uh, well, the opposite of meritorious. I don't know if demeritorious is a word. Blameworthy, that's the word I'm looking for. That's actually blameworthy. And, uh, and I know what you mean about the, the quantitative approach to prayer. Jesus says something about that as well. He says, don't be like pagans who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Now, oftentimes our evangelical brothers will, will use that to attack Catholic prayer in the rosary because we use repetitive prayers. And they'll usually use a million words to do it. And they'll use a million <laughs> words to do it, right? But it seems to me that what you're identifying is if, if, uh, if, if the Catholic form of repetition is, is uh, sequential, you know, um, what, diachronic, uh, then the, the Protestant form of repetition is a synchronic, right? The idea that maybe I'll only say it once, but I'll get 50,000 people to say it once with me, and that'll count more. seems to me that Jesus condemns either idea. If, if a Catholic thinks that his prayers are powerful because he said the same word 50 times, that's just as bad as a Protestant who thinks his prayer will work because he's got 50 people to say it simultaneously. In either case, seems to me sacred scripture speaks against that against that way of approaching prayer. Um, the uh, in terms of understanding the efficacy of prayer, I mean, the scripture does give us a criteria, and the criteria is the prayer of a righteous man avails much. Uh, Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, a great uh, neo-scholastic theologian um, who uh, died in the 20th century, was was a doctoral advisor to Pope John Paul II, said. Well, how does that work? How does how does righteous prayer, why is it necessarily more efficacious? And his opinion was there's one prayer that God infallibly answers in the affirmative, and that is the humble, persevering, faithful prayer for those graces necessary for salvation. That if you pray that, you will never be turned down. And, and I, for me, the model of Christian prayer ultimately is the Blessed Virgin Mary, whose prayer was, be it done to me according to thy word. If you pray like that, you're never going to be disappointed. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Clay in the great state of Illinois. 
We'll answer a question from Paula, and we've got much, much more for you on this edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Our toll-free numbers again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Paula David is watching us on YouTube and wants to know, does the Catholic Church believe synthetic embryos have souls? Okay, so to the I, if by synthetic you mean one that was produced using uh, the tools of genetic engineering, like you would take, which is a recent development. Okay, and, and I know I like the, the dolly the sheep about. would have been that, right? You know, no. Uh, well, that's possible, but this this I think is even. Um, I think there was some genetic material used in that situation, but this I think is starting from scratch with nothing and creating. They can now create embryos. I don't know much about it. Okay, so I don't know enough about the technology. I don't know enough about the technology to speak with any degree of of authority. So, and, and, you know, whenever I'm researching this kind of thing, one of my go-to resources is the Catholic Center for Bioethics. So I'm going to go do some research on the topic. But let me give you a principle here, okay? And, and... Uh, the, the, The Catholic position is that... Yeah, they've used stem cells to create... Embryos. embryos. Okay, so I, I don't know enough about the technology, like I said, but let me give you some principles in metaphysics, in the ontology of the human person. So uh, in the Catholic position, what one of the things that makes human beings unique and spiritual is that we have uh, rationality. The reason that we can infer the existence of an immaterial soul is because the power of abstract thinking involves us in the immaterial realm. There's something that's not reducible to uh, to any material object uh, when you when you're dealing with abstraction, and it's also the Catholic position that to 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 have an immortal soul or to have an immaterial soul requires a special infusion from God. Okay, now uh, so so you don't you don't inherit an immaterial soul from your parents. It's actually infused into the embryo at the moment of conception. That's the Catholic doctrine. If it were the case. That we manufacture, and this is highly speculative, right? I'm, I'm, I'm just on a, I'm just on a wing here, right now. I'm just kind of out on a limb. I'm winging it, I should say. Um, and I would, I await correction by the magisterium, okay? But this is what it seems to me: if a person manufactured from, from, you know, human material, an embryo, uh, and the result of that embryo was the capacity to develop into a rational, self-aware, morally conscious human being then we could reasonably infer the infusion of an, of an immaterial soul by God at the moment of that act of, of, uh, of construction. It wouldn't, it wouldn't justify the action. It wouldn't mean that such a behavior was morally licit, because my strong sense is that the magisterium is going to say, you can't do that. that that's, a, that's a violation of human dignity. But nonetheless, if you had a person that could grow to maturity and they had rationality and self-awareness and conscience and free will and all those spiritual attributes of a human person— then we would conclude that they were a human person, even if 
even if their uh, method of conception was irregular and immoral. Next up is Clay, a first-time caller in the great state of Illinois, listening on Catholic Spirit Radio. Clay, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hello, Mr. Anders. Howdy. Uh, yeah, I was just curious. Uh, do, you, uh, do Catholics believe in an actual seven-day creation, or are they young Earth creationists? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Uh, Catholics are not bound, they are not required by the teaching of the Catholic Church to hold that opinion. And most Catholic theologians, including recent popes, have not held to a young earth or a seven-day creation. Um, and I think there are very good reasons for not taking that position. That being said, the Church does not forbid someone from holding that position, and if a person w did happen to believe in a seven-day creation and a young earth, they wouldn't, they wouldn't violate any dogma of the Catholic faith, uh, but their opinion would not be treated with a lot of seriousness by most Catholic theologians. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Rick is in the great state of Minnesota today listening on Real Presence Radio. Rick, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hello. Howdy. Hey, Doc. Um, <clears throat> here's one for you. On the Synod of Synodality, if the Holy Spirit should tell the Church that they should ordain women, would the self-styled traditionalists accept this? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So a couple of things we need to clarify. First of all, the, 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 the Senate of Bishops um, is not an organ of the magisterium in possession of the charism of infallibility, right? So if the Senate of Bishops stood up and said, the Holy Spirit has revealed to us, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit, to declare unto you the following, the Church must ordain women, um, and, uh, you know, and, and by the way, also declare that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Um, no one, whether they are a traditionalist or a modernist or, a, you know, or, a, or, or an Alabama fan, it doesn't matter who they are, would have any obligation to, to take the word of the Synod as the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because that, in Catholic theology and dogma, that's not one of the organs of infallibility. It's not one of the agents of infallibility. So it is really irrelevant what uh, the Senate or any other body of that sort, consultative body, might say on a particular topic. Um, there have been plenty of occasions in church history when, when uh, self-styled synods and, and, um, and non-ecumenical councils have put forward heretical statements. One of the most famous was the, the so-called blasphemy of Sirmium that took place in the 4th century during the Arian controversy. And we had a Sibi-Arian Roman emperor and empress who imposed uh, Arianism on the church and, and gathered a lot of, um, of yes-men together, bishops from around the world that would affirm that, that position. And they signed an anti-Trinitarian uh, uh, Arian blasphemy as a, as a statement of faith called the Blasphemy of Sirmium. And there were only seven bishops present at the meeting that refused to sign. Um, it's, uh, it led St. Jerome to lament um, that the whole world groaned to find itself Arian, right? But but the verdict of history was that it was a it was a fake council. It didn't possess the charism of infallibility, and its rulings were not authoritative. And it was in fact a a sham job. It was a it was a put up. 
Um, and we've had many other instances like that in history, and you know, when we, we recognize them for what they are. Um, now, the Catholic position is that if something has been revealed, so it's a dogma of the faith, it's been handed on by divine revelation, uh, then the Holy Spirit's not going to contradict it, right? And, and that's, that's the trust that we have in the magisterium of the Church as founded by Jesus. So, you know, when I was coming into the Catholic faith, I encountered this anxiety. I find it often among converts. They say, well, if I, if I make an act of faith in the Catholic Church and I trust that the Holy Spirit leads her, well, what, what happens if down the road the Church changes some fundamental teaching? I mean, th- then won't my faith be wrecked? You don't understand what trust means, Trust means that you know that's not going to happen. You know that's not going to happen. It'd be the same situation that a Protestant would be in when he places his faith in the Bible. Um, he makes a pre-commitment to trust whatever the Bible happens to say, whether or not he's read all of it. And he trusts that he's not going to discover something in the Bible that will, that will undo that act of faith. He might find difficulties that he has to work through, but he's, he's made a pre-commitment that whatever the Bible says is inspired and divinely authoritative. Uh, the Catholic is any similar. It's an analogous position. We don't think that the teachings of the magisterium are inspired as such. That's unique to Holy Scripture. We do think they're guided by the Holy Spirit and, and can, under certain circumstances, be infallible. And we just trust that because God cares about the Church and cares about truth, that he's not going to contradict himself. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Andy is a first-time caller in Indianapolis, Indiana, listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Andy, from Indy, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hello, Jack. Hello, Dr. Anders. Uh, it was great seeing you guys a couple weeks ago in Birmingham. Uh, my question is, what is the proper way to venerate and pray for the intercession in front of a relic? Yeah, thank you. So there, I really appreciate the question. There's a lot of ways you can do this. Um, one is you, you can simply pray in the presence of the relic, and your consciousness of the relic and your, your attention and devotion to the saint in question is, uh, is meaningful. You can touch a relic. You can kiss a relic. You can, you can place a relic upon the sick. That, that's, you'll often find priests doing that. In fact, I've had quite a few stories from priests around here who carry relics with them specifically for that purpose when they go to intercede for the sick. Uh, you know, a lot of the Franciscan types around here have relics of Padre Pio, and they'll whip them out and place them on sick people, and sometimes interesting things happen. Um, so, you know, as, as long as the usage is respectful, oh, yes, sign of the cross. Jack is giving me a big hint by crossing himself with his cell phone right now to remind <laughs> me to say that. Um, as long as the usage is respectful and pious, uh, it really is appropriate. God bless you, Andy. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Robert wants to know, why don't Catholics believe in creationism? Okay, thanks. Appreciate the question. Well, it depends on which Catholics you ask, right? And we've been through this earlier in the show. I mean, there are some Catholics that do. Um, let me say what all Catholics definitely believe. All Catholics believe in creation. All Catholics believe in ex nihilo creation. They believe that, that God created the world from nothing. Um, and uh, and that, is a, that is a specifically Catholic contribution to, to theology. Um, it was actually the second-century theologian Tatian, a, a disciple of Justin Martyr, that first articulated clearly the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, um, and has since passed into the, into the realm of Catholic dogma, and all Catholics are bound to believe in creation, right? 
Um, creationism understood to mean generally a, a young earth of, say, 6,000, maybe no more than 10,000 years old, a, a, a process of creation where God made all individual species according to their own ti- kind without the use of uh, intermediary methods like natural selection, as Darwin taught. Um, uh, you know, the age of the earth, uh, irrespective of what geological science might show, is very young, um, and irrespective of what astronomy might show. Uh, young Earth creationists typically believe that the appearance of age that you find in rock strata or in astrological, uh, astronomical, not astrological, astronomical phenomenon, uh, is that just mere appearance? And they would say, for example, that you know God created the world with the appearance of age, and so He cleverly, you know, seeded the world with ancient-looking fossils, but they're really only six thousand years old. That sort of thing. W- why don't Catholics believe that? Uh, well, for a number of reasons. One is that uh, primarily the scientific evidence counts against it, right? And there have been Catholics in history before the advent of modern science that would have taken a more strictly literalistic uh, uh, interpretation of some of those passages of Scripture, not all Catholics, but some. But, but with the advent of modern science, modern geology, modern biology, modern astronomy, uh, there's just way too much empirical evidence counting against it. And Catholics have a very strong commitment to the principle of the reconciliation of faith and reason, and so that if we can if we can discern that something is likely true reasonably reasonably discern that um, then then we don't that cannot conflict with faith if faith seems to suggest something different then I've either made a mistake in my interpretation of the faith or I've made a mistake in my interpretation of science and Thomas Aquinas uh, 13th century Catholic theologian specifically deals with this problem of appearances and he he, he uh, dealing with the problem of induction the philosophical problem of induction uh, because there were people in the 13th century that took a position similar to modern day creationism it was the Islamic theologian Al-Ghazali and while he wasn't dealing with the age of the earth he was dealing with uh, sort of natural causative principles and Ghazali, as a Muslim, wanted to stress the omnipotence of the will of God, that God's will was not determined or constrained by anything else, and so not even by physical processes. So for al-Ghazali, he was famous for saying, fire does not burn the cotton ball, but rather God burns the cotton ball in the presence or on the occasion of the fire. So what appears to us to be physical processes and physical causes are all uniquely and directly willed by God immediately, just in conjunction with one another to give the appearance of physical causation without there actually being uh, causation. There's just one cause of everything, that's the immediate will of God. And Thomas, uh, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, deals with that opinion, and he says, if that were true, it would make empirical science possible, impossible. It would make reasoning impossible, and it would reduce us you know, to, to just bare faith without any, without any rational component at all. And uh, that runs flat contrary, both to the teaching of the Bible to the idea of the dignity of the human person, to to the uh, to the dignity and responsibility of conscience, to to discern practically the reasonable good in a particular situation, uh, and also we think it's contrary to the dignity of God uh, against Al Ghazali, who thought that if if you ascribed any cause to anything other than God, that would somehow lessen God's dignity. The Catholic position is that God's power and dignity is demonstrated precisely in his ability to delegate authority, his ability to make use of, of instruments of intermediate causes, that that's the, like a great conductor of an orchestra, 
right? He, he doesn't immediately play the instruments himself. He makes use of different media and his ability to conduct this magnificent array of, of, uh, of diverse causes, that precisely is his glory. So it's a very different view of how God's glory functions. So a lot of reasons why Catholics want to go along with empirical science, right? The nature of human reason, even the dignity and the glory of God are all implicated in how we think about that. The idea that God creates with appearances that are meant to deceive really casts God in bad light, that God's kind of pulling the wool over our eyes, metaphysically and epistemologically speaking, so to say. So, um, and then finally, uh, for 2,000 years, Catholics have held that the Bible itself is a very nuanced book, uh, that it's not just an instruction manual on the Christian faith, um, but that it is a progressive revelation of the story of the people of God in the relationship to to the Father, leading us ultimately to the person of Jesus, and that to properly understand it, properly make use of it in our life, you have to recognize these different layers, these different levels of interpretation, culminating ultimately in the person of Jesus and what we call the spiritual sense of the text, which is the text read for personal transformation into the likeness and image of Christ, not as a textbook on geology or human origins. Be sure to join us for Cresta in the afternoon, this afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern time, as soon as we're finished here. And you're going to want to tune in. Don't, don't touch that dial, as they used to say. Because today, Al is revisiting a conversation that he had with the late Father Thomas Dubay on saints and the beauty of holiness on this All Saints Day. Uh, Father Thomas Dubay, just an absolute treasure to the church, especially the church here in America. So listen to that interview with Al Cresta at 4 p.m. Eastern time, as soon as we're done here, Al Cresta in the afternoon, only on EWTN Radio. John's watching us on YouTube, David, and he says, Why is Jesus always portrayed as having long hair? Is there anything in the tradition about this? I read St. Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, right, that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair. Yeah, thanks. So there is an I, there is an iconographic tradition of how Christ is depicted. And in that tradition, which is fairly old, it always has Jesus with what we would consider, you know, I guess by contemporary standards, to be long hair. Um, beyond that, I don't think there's any principled reason. I mean, what we have of artistic representation of the day, I mean, short and long are obviously culturally relative. I don't know what long was in first century Palestine relative to today. Um but uh, but it must have been longer than Christ's hair, probably, and presumably, and I, I, whatever the fashion was for men at the time. It puts me in mind of a, of a joke I heard one time where um, a young man goes to his grandfather, you know, young hippie kid, he's got long hair, and he says, Granddaddy, I'd, I'd like you to buy me a car. His grandfather says, okay, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it on two conditions. And the young man says, what's that? Protestant Baptist grandfather says, well, condition number one is you have to read the Bible all the way through. Condition number two is you have to cut your hair. The young man says, sounds like a deal, you, you got a deal. And he goes home and spends a few weeks or months and comes back and he says, okay, granddaddy, I've, I've read the Bible all the way through and I'm ready for you to buy me a car. Granddaddy says, well, I'm glad you read the Bible. We had two conditions. The other one was that you cut your hair. I see your hair is still long. The young man says, well, you know, granddaddy, after I read the Bible all the way through, I see that Jesus had long hair. Grandfather says, that's right. And he walked everywhere he went. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Micah is watching on YouTube, and he says, Some argue they are not Catholic because it makes no long-term difference because they will see Catholics and non-Catholics in heaven. 
I agreed. Should I have? I don't agree. Thank you. I think it makes a tremendous difference. I mean, I I converted to Catholicism from the Presbyterian tradition. Could I have gone to heaven as a Presbyterian? Yeah, theoretically I could have. Um, so why bother converting? Well, uh, in my case, because Presbyterian taught things that I today regard as monstrous evils that led me into very bad places spiritually in my own soul and my treatment of other people. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Presbyterianism, the founding theologian of Presbyterianism is John Calvin. Calvin believed that the world was divided into the elect, a small number of people that God had picked out from before the foundation of the world for salvation, irrespective of their moral behavior, and the vast majority of the human race that he had decided before the world was created specifically to create for the purpose of sending them to hell. They were the so-called reprobate. And not only did Calvin divide the world into the elect and the reprobate, but he thought that he knew which was in which camp, that they were, that they were publicly available signs that could delimit uh, the elect from the reprobate, and he was sure he was on the side of the elect. And he was sure the people that disagreed with him were on the side of the reprobate. And that that way of dividing the human race and being absolutely certain of one's own salvation and sanctity and absolutely certain of the perdition of your neighbor is such a pernicious attitude to take in your social relations. Now, Calvin did some atrocious things that many modern evangelicals don't do, but there's a remnant of that attitude that remains in the tendency to treat people that don't worship like you as objects of conversion and proselytism, who's all, who are good for one thing, and that's for me to coerce them into becoming a Presbyterian like me. And the, the, the haughty, self-righteous, cocky, cocksure attitude that I used to have with regard to non-evangelicals and non-Presbyterians, that would include Catholics, by the way, where I was so sure that I was right and righteous and that I had nothing to learn from other people because I had the Bible and the correct interpretation of it, made me a jerk. And one of the things, one of the many things that converted me to the Catholic faith was recognizing that the evangelical Presbyterian faith in which I was living actually made me a worse human being. And I, had a, I remember one time I had a debate with this fellow, friend of mine, relative of mine, about the reliability of the New Testament. And I had just read and nearly memorized F.F. F. Bruce's book, the, the reliability of the New Testament documents, and I'd committed the arguments to memory so that I could rhetorically defeat people in debate. And we have this debate, and I and he hadn't read F.F. F. Bruce and wasn't a biblical scholar, and I just wiped the floor with him, and I felt really high on myself for, for you know, nailing this guy into the dirt. Now, what did I think would happen at that point, that he would throw up his hands and say, praise Jesus, let me into your wonderful church where everybody treats each other so nicely? What he actually said was something that was a non sequitur in terms of the debate, but spoke volumes to me. He said, well, Dave, my problem is I don't like Christians. And I realized I have given him no reason to, right? That the, the fundamental presupposition, presupposition of my faith, which was that I was saved because I had the right faith, and my job was to force it down other people's throats, made me an unloving, uncharitable person. Um, it also made me deeply irrational, because I, was, I limited my conception of what was true to a very narrow and, I think, erroneous interpretation of a book that doesn't exist for that purpose. I misconstrued the nature of the Bible. So it made me mean, petulant, egotistical, selfish, and irrational. And by contrast, becoming Catholic has, I hope, at least I aspire, that it would make me more humble, more loving, more wise, 
more rational, less judgmental, um, and, uh, and just fundamentally a better human being. And because of that, that's a real dynamic in my life that I think my odds of going to heaven are improved by being Catholic, even though there are virtuous Presbyterians who are better people than I am. I didn't say that every Presbyterian was a narrow-minded bigot, right, who treated other people badly. I said I was. But I, but I know the signs. I know the tendencies. I know that Calvin was also a, a, an arrogant bigot, right? I learned it from him. There are Presbyterians who aren't like that. But there was, a, there was something to be gained in my own life, spiritually and morally and rationally, by becoming Catholic. And I try to share that with other people. Very quickly, we'll head to Betsy in Detroit, Michigan. She is listening on Ave Maria Radio. Betsy, just a couple minutes left with Dr. Anders. What's your question today? So I learned online about Reformation Day, got into a discussion about this on social media, and my whole thing was, there works. As St. Paul said, there's works. And I was told, no, because if you believe in God, or you believe in Christ, you're going to act like it. And I brought up the mafia and said, they wear crosses, they believe, they... Anyways, I didn't know a good... um, They didn't respond to that, and it was all about sola gratia, sola Sure, sure, sure. So, Bitsy, I've only got a few seconds before the end of the show, and I don't have enough time to deal with this in depth, so I'd love for you to call back again and let us talk more in depth. But you're correct, and your Lutheran friends are incorrect, that sacred scripture tells us that faith is necessary because it's through faith that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But what the Holy Spirit does for us is he changes our hearts. He makes us loving. He makes us able to obey the law and therefore be saved. St. Paul tells us in Romans 2.13, It's not just those who hear the law, it's those who obey the law that God will declare righteous. And of course, Christ himself says, many people will come to me in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, away from me, I never knew you because you didn't do these righteous deeds. So you're correct, they're wrong. If you want to talk more, I can give you a long explanation about why they think the way they think and why I believe they're mistaken. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, our Call screener Matt Kubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. Thanks for tuning in. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. God bless.